All right, uh, this morning, I have a question for you. Just ponder on this one. If your child or your spouse had done something wrong, broke your trust, what might it take for them to earn their trust back, to get a second chance, if you will? I'm sure it varies by the type of offense, but just for the sake of this hypothetical, not only have you forgiven them, let's just say that you were able to forgive them, but you begin to grow trust with them again. They are trusted with more responsibilities. However, as soon as you think everything is just fine, even better than before, they fail you again. They lie, they cheat, they steal. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, what do we say? Shame on me. It's an expression, old expression. Not every president has gotten it right when he's tried to say it. Um, And uh, the city of Nineveh had been spared the wrath of God after the preaching of Jonah. You may have remembered that. We did it a couple of months ago. Uh, Had I realized the connection between this book and the book of Jonah, I probably would have done them right back and forth. But I came across this as I was flipping through my Bible, and I thought this was interesting. So we'll see where this goes after today. But today, we're just going to look at chapter 1. You see, after the preaching of Jonah, uh, they had repented, right? Even though he didn't say, hey, repent, they did it anyway. And much to Jonah's dismay, God did not destroy Nineveh on that day. However, their repentance was short-lived. They were right back into their former ways of life. The same behaviors that landed them in hot water with God before were back. And God was not going to stay his hand this time. And that's the general setting for the book of Nahum. Uh, It's Nineveh the sequel, which is what I decided to title today's message. Except this time, there's nothing fishy about the prophet. So we're going to look at the whole first chapter of Nahum, but before we do, uh, and now hopefully you've had enough time to look for it, before we do, let's talk just a little bit about who wrote it and who it was written to. In the very first verse, we're told, and it it is uh, Nineveh, uh, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Eclashite. So he's Nahum, the Eclashite. Um, That is... What, uh, and that it was a vision that he received and prophesied in this writing. My question is, who did he write it to? Usually when you write something like a letter, you write it for an audience. Interestingly enough, it's one of the very few books uh, where the prophecy is actually not to God's chosen people, not to Israel, not to uh, Judah, but, in, but to the Ninevites themselves. It addresses them. In several places, He directly addresses them as the audience, verse 1, 8, 11, and 15. So if you wanted to see those, you'll see those as we read through this chapter. But also, it was kind of also for the Israelites. The book of prophecy would not just foretell calamity, but also paint a picture of the one who brings the judgment. It is a lesson in theology, talk about God, theology, to the children of God. You might ask the question, who is God? What kinds of things does God do? What will God do? These are the questions that we want to answer and we'll try our best to answer from Nahum chapter one. 
So if you have your Bible, starting at verse 1, we'll read that and go all the way through verse 15. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Eclashite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Is this heavy enough for you? Let's look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an, event, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. And he's talking in Judah. Judah. We'll talk about that here in a moment. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there are, look on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm get a drink here. Now, maybe if you're like a super ace and really love filling in blanks, you've got all of them done already. But in case you don't, we're going to go look back over that, take a little bit more time. Uh, but before we dive into filling in the blanks, I want to say one thing that I learned about this particular chapter. If you noticed, it's... Um, it's, it's got a little bit of a style to it. And if we were to read it in its original language, we would find out that it's an acrostic poem, very similar to other places that we find in Scripture. Uh, and, and the wording, the way that it is worded, sounds almost poetic, and that's the reason why, is that it's an acrostic poem. Um, you see the real difference when you're looking at the other two chapters in Nahum, <clears throat> where it's more information in the prophecy but this is more talking about things that are um, 
not unknowable or not, not able, things that are, uh, I would say, poetic in nature. I don't know how better to describe it. And so hence a poem that brings us to today. Um, and, and so what we want to do is let's look at what we can learn about the nature of God, because this one speaks to the nature of God very much. When we say God is, so that's your first column, God is, and then each blank is going to help us fill that in. But I noticed another pattern after I started looking at these God is statements, I found God does statements or things that are very similar, like it's an action he's taking that's stated in this passage, not uh, God is, is this, it's God uh, does this. And then there was another one that we'll touch on here every once in a while is God will. It's a, it's a future action, not a continual action. It's an action he will do in the future, not an action he's currently taking. All right, so let's look at these today as we describe him. And we want to know, in fact, who were defined, who these, sorry, let me back up here. Um, these are important details to remember because he's not just telling these to the Ninevites. This isn't just being addressed to the Ninevites. Who else? To Judah. We saw that slip in there, and I thought that was interesting where that came from, is he starts talking to Judah like he was talking to them the whole time. So we're going to talk about why that is, because they're kind of listening along and reading the transcript. It's kind of like being carbon copied on an email or CC'd, if you know what that means. Um, They have something to learn from this as well, even though all of this prophecy is down towards Nineveh and its fall. So... Let's learn about the character of the holy God who can, does, and will take action to respond to the atrocities of wickedness. Now, our first one in verse 2. God is a jealous and avenging God. He's filled with wrath. I don't know if you're trying to evangelize somebody and you start with that phrase. Can I hey, knock on their door? Hi, can I tell you about an avenging God who is jealous and is filled with wrath and you smile at him real big? I don't think you're going to get them to keep the door open. That doesn't sound like something I'd want to invite in my door. But I thought, well, here it says it. It tells us this right now. We look, though, at what God does in verse 2. And he takes something. He takes vengeance. And he says it twice in this, in this area and then later on. He takes, or actually back in verse Yeah, in verse 2, it says vengeance twice. He takes vengeance on his foes. Um, And he maintains his wrath against his enemies. He maintains his wrath against his enemies. When we jump down to verse 3, it says that he is slow to anger. Well, that sounds very tempered then. If he's a jealous and avenging God, he's filled with wrath, but he's slow to anger. But he's also, hey, guess what? Great in power. So these are the, the nature statements. Stature. And then, then we get something about God will in verse, in verse 3. It says, God will not leave what? He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And the way that I had to reword this for my own brain is that he will punish the guilty. He's not going to leave them unpunished. Therefore, that means he's going to punish the guilty. 
Now, verse 4 actually doesn't have a God is statement. It has a God does statement. And what does he do? Well, he rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Uh, We could probably relate to that, especially it seems like we're having so much drought in this area and all throughout. Um, and people are complaining, uh, and, and, but they're also celebrating. I think that's a really great thing. The sad part about, uh, the good thing about a drought is when it ends and everybody can get together and talk about how nice it is that we had a nice big old rain. Um, we usually don't uh, get all excited about big old floods. We get disappointed with those floods. It's always the extremes we're disappointed with. But we've got this big old drought. He makes all the rivers run dry in verse four. And then, I found that there's another little piece. It's kind of like a, outside of God, there's these natural consequences, like a response of the land or a response of the, the world around him because of his actions. It says, Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. So there's some natural death and withering that takes place because he is and, and does rebuke waters, makes rivers dry. And then there's natural consequences because of God's nature. Him just walking into the room. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. I can't even picture what that looks like. I don't think I would be very scared to see those kinds of things happen. And then it says the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. That's from verse five. So there's a physical reaction to God's actual activities of drying up the ground, of course, there's a natural process, but then there's a, there's a supernatural response of the world, of the, of the universe, when he just steps into the room, hey, nice to meet you, I'm God, and the earth starts to tremble and the earthquake happens. That's amazing and kind of scary. And it sounds like a God you wouldn't want to take lightly. And so Nahum is prophesying all of this, and we're only into verse 5. But what is God? What is God in verse 7? Well, God is good. Verse 7 gives us a little bit of a relief. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. And what does God do? He cares for those who trust in him. He cares for those who trust in him. What about another God, the Lord, the Lord will? What would the Lord do in verse 8? He will, so this is telling ahead of time, hey, guess what, Nineveh, heads up, he's going to make an end of you, Nineveh. And then he gives some clarification with an overwhelming flood. And then what will God do? He will pursue his foes into darkness. It's not good enough that, that his foes are retreating, because they can always regroup and come back later. No, he's going to pursue them even into the place that they think they're safe and well-hidden. I don't know if you've ever played um, like Sardines or Hide and Seek, which is a game. Uh, well, Sardines is like Hide and Seek, but like in reverse. Everybody hides. If you, f- if you find, actually, I can't remember. There, well, there's one person hiding and it's very small space. Lock-ins love this. And you hide in a really small space. And everybody else tries to find you. And if they find you, they have to be quiet and join you in that small space until, ever, until there's only one person left that hasn't found you. If I'm wrong, don't, don't tell me. I'm a, you can correct me later, children. We can play it, okay? But there's these, all these other... But like, 
You think that you're safe in this dark, small space. Nobody can find you. No, he's coming, Nineveh. You cannot hide. You cannot regroup. This is the end. And then finally, finally there's this accusation. I don't have this written in the notes, but it's, it's kind of an interesting historical point. Uh, that he points out, and perhaps in the other chapters, if we, if we move on to the chapters 2 and 3 in the, in the coming weeks, we'll open it up a little bit. But there's this final accusation. It's no longer this poetic nature. This is a straight point thing. Hey, here's what's going on. You need to understand it. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. It's a straightforward accusation. It's, not, it's no longer poetic in nature. I started asking the question, who is this one? Uh, the information that I have looked into, and I'm going to dig more in the coming weeks, it seems as if it's their king, and uh, who, who is just the king of Assyria, who is really messing around and has a very complicated name that I will learn by next week. So, who is that one? There's a straightforward accusation, a little bit of a break in the style of this acrostic poem. And he directly points out what they have done wrong. And who is leading plots of evil against the Lord. But another picture of God is someone who will afflict no more. But who is he He's he resisting afflicting? Well, we look at verse 12. He is afflicting Judah no more. He's changed who he's talking to here in this prophecy. He's, he's included the carbon copy person. Hey, I want to just let you know Here's this prophecy against Nineveh. But I want to give you encouragement and hope. You see all this stuff that's coming down on Nineveh? I'm going, to, I'm going to afflict you no more. I'm going to not only afflict you no more, but I'm going to break the yoke around your neck. Well, whose who's yoke and whose neck? The yoke of Nineveh around Judah's neck. I'm going to tear your shackles, Judah, Away. That's from verse 13. And then God says, I'm going, I will destroy the carved images and cast idols of Nineveh. These, these things of worship, these things of great importance to them, are going to be destroyed by the only one who ought to have been worshipped. The one that they should have learned long ago when they put sackcloth on, even on their animals for Pete's sakes, they still didn't get it. It was a temporary fix. It was a band-aid on a gunshot wound. It was a stay of execution. And their time was up in Nahum. And in verse 14, he says... I will prepare Nineveh's grave. That's how desperate and how, how the end of the line this is. But again, we get this little lift, don't we? We got this in verse, we got this in verse seven where it says the Lord is good. We get this in, verse, uh, in verses 12 through 13 where he gives encouragement to Judah about being afflicted no more and breaking the yoke. And then here in verse 15, it's so good and it might foreshadow somebody you might know or think about. Let's see if you can guess. Look there on the mountains, 
the feet of the one who brings good news. Hmm, I wonder who brought good news on the mountains. Who proclaimed peace. He also says in this verse, celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. It sounds like good news for our carbon copy friends, those of Judah. I look at this book, and just specifically this one first chapter, as we've just kind of gone through these verse by verse, and piece these out and understand who God is. God is more complex than I really give him credit for. He's someone I don't want to mess with because when he walks in and says, hey, I'm God, (laughs) the earthquakes start occurring. The earth has to physically respond to his awesomeness. That is how holy and majestic he is. Some people try to disconnect the God of the Old Testament you might think we're reading about right now with the God of the New Testament or even how God interacts. Like, oh, well, he changed since those old times or how he's changed since the Bible was done in Revelation. And, oh, no, he's changed now. He's, he's, He's working different. No, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why it's important for us to read the Bible because it tells us the character and the nature of God and how we ought to respond in gratefulness and humility Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You're like, okay, pastor, now you've just thrown a curveball because you just completely obliterated your entire sermon because what about Nineveh back in Jonah, right? You remember Jonah and the great fish? Didn't God change his mind? Forgive the air quotes. Well, let me quote, Jonah 3.10 for you. When God saw that they did what they did, repented, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them, Nineveh, did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. You see, his intentions were to right what had gone wrong in Nineveh. The repentance of the Ninevites seemed to solve this for the time being, But God gave them, like I said earlier, a stay of execution that would be finalized in the prophecy from Nahum. But although I'm comparing these two prophets and their books, the object of their writing is actually very different. Whereas Nahum is solely focused on declaring the fall of Nineveh due to their wickedness, the book of Jonah focuses on Jonah's disobedience. And repentance. Jonah and Nineveh have similar stories in the book of Jonah, have you noticed? They both are disobedient to God in their own way. Both have dire consequences that, are, that affect them and the innocents around them. And they both receive another chance after repenting. It's a wonderful parallel, but they're different. And it's unfortunate that Nineveh didn't keep obeying the Lord. Even if in Jonah's recording, they all repented and mourned, eventually old habits slipped back into place. 
idol worship, cruelty, pride, and conquering without care for those they conquered. There would not be another chance for the capital city of Assyria. Just as much as we saw this coming a mile away, we also receive an interesting detail painting, uh, painting of the God who will wipe them away. That one will wipe them away, will in doing so free others. He will free Judah from the oppression of the cruel Assyrians. But I can't help but focus about on verse 15 as we close and think about the one I hinted at, who is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, when I look at verse 15. The one who freed us from oppression, from the yoke of enslavement to sin. Verse 15 starts, look there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Old and New Testament, God is still the same today, yesterday, and forever. The Prince of Peace has been bringing peace since the beginning of the need for peace. And to free someone, you have to break the chains. And it was Nineveh's time, as Nahum records in chapter one. And what about for you and I? What do we think about when we think about who God is? What he does as we see it? What are we hopeful for what he will do? What do we know in our hearts and minds and what the word tells us he will do? How do we feel about him? Those are helpful questions. They don't change what God will do or who God is. And perhaps we should be a little bit more like the ground. When God walks in and says, hi, we start to quake. For we cannot be unshaken when the Holy One is around. We cannot stay unchanged when a holy God and the Prince of Peace walk into town. We bow before him humbly and follow our one true king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day. We thank you that injustice does not get to stick around. We know as you are the one who cares and is in charge of all people, not just Judah, not just Israel, but you declare the fates of all lands and people groups. That's why people who don't know you and people who don't believe you exist are still affected by what you want to do in this world and what you do in this world whether they like it or not, whether they believe it or not. And so Jesus, it's our mission to introduce them to their fresh start in you. Jonah got one, we read about a month ago. Nineveh got one in the same book. And then Nineveh slipped back and it was time for the ax to fall, so to speak. And within just a couple years, of this being preached and presented in Nahum. 
Assyria fell and Nineveh fell. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to not miss that opportunity when you rebuke us, that we repent and we stay turned towards you and not back towards ourselves. We begin worship, we turn away from self-worship and we turn towards you worship, worship of you, God, in all that we do. And I pray that that would not just rub off on people as they see it, that would be great, but that we would be bold to speak it as well that we would call out idolatry in our community and in our world, that we would help them to see as you enable us to do so where they need to repent and turn to you. That's a hard thing, Lord, but lives hang in the balance. And if you've called us to be your witnesses here on this earth, we can't let an entire city go down the tubes without a fight. We love you, Jesus. Help us to fight for our community. Help us to stay fully turned towards worshiping and serving you only. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray for peace in this world, the peace that aligns under your lordship. In your name we pray, amen.